one of the misconceptions that's slowly changing is the whole notion that the less you speak, the less intelligent you are. A lot of autistic people can't speak. And right now, especially even over the last few years, um, and we've interviewed four non-speakers on our podcast, the most recent being Elizabeth Bonker. And Elizabeth was a valedictorian in her college last year, in Rollins College. It was a wonderful interview. And she's wonderful and super bright. Is your child's challenging behavior leaving you feeling exhausted, defeated, and hopeless? You are not alone. And I want you to know you are not a failure and your child is not broken. Welcome to Calm the Chaos Parenting, the podcast for parents raising strong-willed, highly sensitive, or neurodivergent children. I'm Dana Abraham, parenting expert, and I have helped hundreds of thousands of families just like yours. Each week, I'll share simple science-backed solutions to help you feel more grounded, in tune, and deeply connected to your child, no matter what challenge you face. Start your journey from surviving to thriving as a family at CalmTheChaosPodcast.com. Over my years of parenting an autistic child, working with parents of autistic children, and meeting beautiful and amazing autistic humans. I've always wished that the rest of the world could see these humans as amazing as they are. And I've been following the person that we're going to talk to today for a very long time, and I have loved his work, but I devoured his book recently. And so I am so incredibly honored to have the one, the only Dr. Very present on the show with us, the author of Uniquely Human. So, welcome. Do I call you Dr. Fazant, Barry? How do you like to be called? You can call me Barry. <laughs> oh, that is so awesome. Well, Barry, thank if you. you like so much. Simon, you can call me Al. So, not. I love that too. I actually love that song. Right before we got on, I was like, wow, you've got such an amazing bio here. Like, what's the most important part? And you started sharing it. And I was like, no, 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 no. You just need to tell this yourself. So for people who don't know who you are or might not know your backstory, can you share a little bit about yourself and what you do? My journey is a big part of even where I am right now because I'm, um, I've passed 50 years in the field, wow. starting out as a teenager working at summer camps for children and adults with disabilities. Um, and that was in the Northeast, uh, uh, Pennsylvania and New York. And I still say that those six summers of being a caregiver, of being responsible for the happiness and the safety and living with individuals two months a year uh, who I had very little exposure to in my school years growing up in New York City. I had a, just a little bit of a touch of what families and parents um, live 24-7, um, but nothing close to that in terms of mm -hmm. the frustrations and intensity, especially with systems. So then bottom line is I was always interested in language and communication, went on for a degree in communication disorders. That includes a master's and a doctorate. Um, I actually did my uh, dissertation and master's thesis on autism in the 1970s. That's and amazing. and people say those are the dark ages. There wasn't much going on. And I actually worked in a very excellent program for the time without the technology um, at Buffalo Children's Hospital because the staff were excellent and we were family centered. And many, many years since then, done a lot of research on a lot of topics, everything from echolalia to so-called problem behavior, developed a educational model with colleagues called the CERTS model. 
mm. which is now used in more than a dozen countries. And right up to the present, um, eight years ago, I published a book called Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism. It is now translated into 26 languages, um, which has given me the great benefit of traveling the world and seeing how autistic people, autistic children are understand and supported in both Western and non-Western cultures. Um, I still remain very involved with classroom consultations and with families and parents. And the last thing I'll mention, which is very important for my history and my learning, is we've been doing a parent retreat weekend for 25 years. Um, Hand in hand with a parent-run family support agency. Mm -hmm. So I have the privilege of being one of the very few professionals with 60 parents once a year for a full weekend and learning from them and listening to them. I know you've been doing all of this and been in this kind of world since you were a teenager, but what do you think has made you so passionate about helping the world understand autism from a different perspective? One word misunderstood. <laughs> that, that even from the beginning, even from my uh, residential camp experiences, all the way through my dissertation research on echolalia, which at the time, um, the most common approach was to punish it, was to ignore it out of, you know, the very early roots of ABA approaches. In fact, it was Lovas, the father of ABA and autism, um, who was the one who put that forth. I always do like to say that before he passed away a number of years ago, in an interview, he totally reversed his position. But it never got into writing. It never got into articles. Um, a lot of what goes on in behavioral approaches have been reversed, such as the use of aversives, punishment, um, and not even understanding. And what gets back to your question here, not even understanding everything from so-called stims or self-stimulatory behavior to the culture of autism, which we now know is very important as we continue to learn from um, self-advocates uh, who talk about what's been helpful in their lives and what's not been helpful for them. So that's the other thing I would add to what I said earlier. So I like to say I have a green card. I'm not on the spectrum. I'm not neurodivergent, um, but I collaborate, I work with, I write with and have very good friendships, personal friendships with many, many autistic people. And you can see that in your writing and you can really feel that just that compassion you have towards, I want to be a listener and I want to collaborate and really help get amplify the voices that aren't being heard. So I just thank you for the work that you do. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing I always say, people always say, well, what do you suggest for younger educators, younger therapists, uh, because I do, you know, I have a university affiliation. It, it's not, it's an adjunct appointment. So I do some lectures periodically, but I get to meet tons of students from around the world. And I always say, you know, go beyond your clinics, go beyond your classrooms, hang out with families, mm-hmm. hang out with autistic people, autistic kids in many, many different settings. It will give you a very different lens of what the experience of autism mm-hmm. is not only for autistic people and kids, but for the families. And that's something I take a lot of pride in, in that we're very person-centered and very family-centered in all of our work. That came through really strong in the book as well. And, you know, you're talking about misunderstandings, and that was, you know, the beginning of the book, you break it down into kind of these common misunderstandings around STEMs and around non-speaking individuals and around meltdowns and social interactions. Can you talk a little bit about what 
some of the most common misconceptions around these different pieces are, and then what the science and what you've learned from all of these different individuals, what is actually happening. I thought that part was really fascinating. We're in different places right now. So for example, with so, so-called self-stims, um, which you know people define it differently, but for the most part, they are behavior self-stimulatory to increase sensory input or motor output which was considered for years to be an autistic behavior that needed to be gotten rid of because if you got rid of staring at your fingers or flapping or jumping or spinning, you're getting rid of autism, which of course is not true at all. Um, and what we, we were I, in our search model, we were actually one of the first almost 20 years ago to talk about those as self-regulatory behaviors. But in many, many cases, it's an effort for a person to decrease anxiety or to let out extra energy that they need to deal with. Um, and one of the most you know, gratifying things for me, not just for self-esteem, for a lot of areas, is now autistic people are saying, hey, you're right. That's, that's why I do it. <laughs> um, so right now, especially if you listen to the autistic self-advocate community, you understand. Um, and even people who used to, even you know, behavioral psychologists who used to say, okay, how do we extinguish or reduce the frequency of those self-stims? Many of them are now saying, okay, we recognize self-stims are soothing and are self-regulatory for a lot of people. So we've had some movement there, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other areas uh, in terms of misunderstanding, especially is with non-speaking or minimally speaking people. Um, and that's part culture, that our culture equates intelligence with how well you could speak, how articulate you are, um, how well you can problem solve and express your ideas through written language or spoken language. Um, And unfortunately, we know due to a number of issues, the most prominent issue being significant motor speech disorders, neuromotor disorders, a lot of autistic people can't speak. And right now, especially even over the last few years, um, and we've interviewed four non-speakers on our podcast now, the most recent being Elizabeth Bonker. um, And Elizabeth was a valedictorian in her college last year, in Rollins College. It was a wonderful interview. It just came out about a month and a half ago. And she's wonderful and super bright. So one of the misconceptions that's slowly changing is the whole notion that the less you speak, the less intelligent you are. Okay. Now, there are many, many people now who communicate through spelling, letter boards, typing, um, typing on an iPad, using certainly technology, Prolo Quota Go, software that allows them to communicate. I'm not saying that, and this is where it's controversial, that some people are saying every non speaking person is, and I don't even know what this means. But every non-speaking person is fully intelligent and we have to totally redefine autism because these are people who are just trapped inside their body. Mm. Um, Similar to what is said with many people with cerebral palsy. Mm. I mean, autism is more than that. Autism involves significant sensory issues, involves a need for much greater predictability than other people have in their lives. Um, But still, the motor component, the neuromotor component, is a significant co-occurring condition for many people with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has not been understood. 
Uh, so now there are organizations such as Communication First. They all have their websites and their organizations. Elizabeth Bonkers Communication for All, it's called. Um, the IASC, the International Association for Spelling to Communicate. These are all advocacy organizations to support non-speaking or minimally speaking um, autistic people. Uh, Communication First is for all non-speaking people, regardless of the difficulties they have due to their disability. If you're listening, I'm going to go ahead and make sure that we put those links to those different foundations and organizations in the show notes. So be sure to check those out um, because I know, uh, Barry, you're sharing so many great resources for parents and I want them to be able to find them. So thank you so much for sharing these. And I mean, the bottom line is we need to listen to non-speaking people as much as we listen to speaking people. Yes. And you, because a person has minimal speech or is non-speaking and some, in some cases, non-vocal, they're vocalized. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make any assumptions about their social awareness and their intelligence. Okay? Mm-hmm. And we have to provide the opportunities and the systems for them to be able to express their intelligence. Um, and if you want a more of a deeper dive, just another plug, um, a wonderful young woman named Jordan Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jordan is D-Y-N. D-A-N. There's a full movie about her life called It's Not About Me. And it's online. It costs a few dollars to cover their costs. Um, but it shows how she was considered to be a severe, aggressive, behaviorally disordered child up until her teen years, until she finally was given a system that she could communicate with. And a couple of years ago, she completed her master's degree. Um, at Boston College, I believe it was. And she sits on President Biden's council for people with disabilities right now. Amazing stories. It is an amazing story. And you mentioned aggression. So can we talk a little bit about meltdowns? Because I know, you know, a lot of the families that come to me, whether their child is diagnosed with autism or not, I thought that the things that you talked about, about what's really going on when you see meltdowns or you see a big explosive outburst, um, especially when there's the hitting, the kicking, the the headbutting, that sort of thing. Um, I thought what you talked about with like the breach and trust and those sorts of things, I thought was so, so helpful. Can you talk a little bit about that misunderstanding? Yeah. And when, and when you talk about meltdowns and so-called, and even these terms are being challenged now, problematic behavior, challenging behavior. Um, and they're being challenged because well, it's always been that we're challenged. The neurotypical people, the parents, the teachers, the therapists are challenged. And we never take the perspective of the person engaging in behaviors defined. Well, that's actually, oh my gosh. Yeah. After that, I want to, I want to go head to head and ask your question. Cause I actually say that we help parents with even the most challenging kids. And I don't think that the kids are challenging in a bad way. I think they're challenging us to think differently and to look differently and to do all the things differently. And that's the only reason I keep using that term is not because I don't think it's negative at all. I think it's like, we need to be listening to these kids. They are telling us that they need us to change the way we're doing things. So I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. And, and, you know, it gets to the point of what does a person feel like when they're having a meltdown? We have a very narrow definition of aggression. And that narrow definition is the intention to harm somebody else, okay? And in many cases, we are seeing individuals who might be flailing, their arms are flying, their elbows are flying. Um, And yes, 
They may be reaching out to scratch you or bite you, but it's not like I'm going to make this person hurt. It's like you're doing something to me that is so stressful that I can't hold myself together anymore. It's the only, and if I can't say, no, stop it, I need a break, then how can I get you to stop it? Mm-hmm. So in most cases, and actually there's research on this, in most cases, those kinds of behaviors, oh, so often called aggressive, are really protests and refusals. Okay. And some autistic people say, I need to do this to survive. You know, if you're making me sit and still in a loud environment that's painful for me, and I push you away and I bolt out of the room, for me, that's survival. I'm not trying to hurt you. You are the obstacle that's in my way in terms of surviving. And so much of this has to do with communication. Because if you don't have the effective way to communicate, and to stay regulated emotionally, you're going to go into a rage. Mm-hmm. And every person listening to this discussion has gone into a rage at some point in their life, whether it was to their children, whether it was to their partners, whether it was to their friends. When you have to come back when you're better regulated and you apologize and you say, I- I'm sorry, I-, I was out of control. I didn't know what I was doing. A lot of people say, Domestic abuse in some cases is about that. Um, And and I'm not saying all the domestic abuse, but it's a person out of control who can't control their emotions anymore when there's a conflict. So my point is these issues about difficult, challenging, aggressive behavior are extremely complex. Mm -hmm. Um, It could have to do with communication limitations. One of the things that has happened in the field, and I wish it would happen more, but it is happening now, is making sure there are no biomedical issues underlying what we Mm -hmm. see. So a child could be slamming himself in the head because he has undiagnosed or she has undiagnosed migraine headaches. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with kids like that. Or a a, a kid could be banging his stomach against the table, rocking back and forth because of undiagnosed GI issues. And we know that on the autism spectrum, it's estimated that as many as 40 to 60% of individuals with an autism diagnosis have mild to severe gastrointestinal issues due to food sensitivities and food allergies. So we should always rule out biomedical issues first. Sensory sensitivities. If a child is tactically defensive, which means sensitive or hypersensitive to touch, and somebody puts their hand on their shoulder and the elbow goes like this, and you get an elbow in the nose, Is that aggressive behavior or is that the neurological system reacting to what my dear friend, Stephen Shore, who's autistic adult, very well-known autistic adult, he talks about sensory violations. Um, So if a situation is too noisy, too loud, or you touch me and I hate touch, okay, Um, or in the communication sphere, if you're asking me to go into a noisy gym, and I know it's going to be like hell to me and painful, okay? And I don't know how to say, no, thank you. Or I say, no, thank you. And you say to me, sorry, you need to go into the gym. That could lead to meltdowns. One other thing I'd like to say, um, and this would require a much deeper dive than the time we have right now, is it is our obligation as parents, therapists, teachers, even neighbors, once we get to know a child or an autistic person, to read their signals. We call them signals of dysregulation. Um, Okay, I'm getting a little bit anxious now. 
You know, when you say go into that gym, I'm showing a little bit of a fear reaction. You know, maybe a little bit of deer in the headlights look, or maybe no, 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 or I turn away or I start walking away. Unless we are good readers of those signals of dysregulation, then we might be the ones to push a person or a child into a meltdown. Mm -hmm. um, so when I give workshops, inevitably the issue of meltdowns comes up. I ask people in the audience, and it's always a mix of parents, professionals, how many of you have been the primary reason that your student or your child has gone into a full-blown meltdown? Want to guess how many people raise their hands? Everybody. <laughs> and I ask that question to be able to increase their ability to self-reflect. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, well, what did you do? Anybody, you know, if anybody's generous enough and feels comfortable enough, share what you did. Teacher says, well, you know, I really wanted my student to finish a math worksheet and she was doing so well, I thought she could sit another 10 minutes. And she said, no, all done, all done. I said, come on, you could finish these six more examples. And she pushed the sheet away and I said, no, 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 we don't do that. And that triggered a meltdown, okay? Yeah. Or a, a mother or father said, with all good intentions, you know, I, we took our son to an amusement park. He usually likes going to a theme park or an amusement park, but he had been sick recently and he didn't sleep that well the night before we were traveling. And we went to the park um, and he looked like he wasn't having a good time. And he was saying, go home, go home, go home. And we said, but you love the park. Come on, let's go. Let's go on this roller coaster. You've done it before. You love it. No, 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 no. And the kid has a meltdown. You could never use this as an excuse. You've done it before. I've seen him do it before. He could tolerate that. He could do it because the person you're talking to at that moment who is looking increasingly dysregulated maybe is not the same person that you know he was when we went to the amusement park or the theme park last time. And people yeah. say, what do you mean what not the same person? What do you mean? And so let me give you a very quick example. You've all been through a tough week at work, okay? And a friend comes up to you on Friday afternoon and said, wow, it's been quite the, the week. Let's go out and have a beer. And you say, no, 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 I just need to go home. No, no, no. Come on, let's go have a beer. Come on. You, you know, I've taken you for a beer on a Friday night after a week and you've had a great time. Come on, let's go. No, 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 I'm just exhausted. You are a different person at that point in time than the time you went out and you had the energy and you had a good time. Mm -hmm. What is even more dramatic with autistic individuals and many with neurodevelopmental differences is what's called arousal modulation difficulties. Fancy word for staying in a well-regulated state, your arousal state. Are you low arousal and tired and you just can't focus anymore and you just need to get into an environment that's low stimulus? You know, or are you a high arousal and you got so much energy you don't know what to do with yourself? Arousal modulation difficulties are you have problems regulating where you are. Now, we all do to some extent, but we're a lot better if you're neurotypical. Your neurological system is a lot better at that. A lot of people on the spectrum, they're surprised at how their arousal state changes and they don't understand why. You know, going from, okay, well regulated in that good zone to, that I can't control my energy and it's uh, or extremely zoned out and low aroused. Mm -hmm. And occupational therapists know a lot about that. Yes. That. Yeah. yes, yes, yes. 
and we know a lot about it. I mean, I'm ADHD myself, and so I know some about it, but I've also ex- watched my son go from, you know, that mid to high and just like low to high even really fast in the way that many of our parents describe it in our community is just that zero to 60 in, you know, a matter of seconds. And and there's a reason yeah. for it. So. Dana here. And guess what? My book, Calm the Chaos, has officially launched. So if you enjoy the podcast and find the stuff we're sharing valuable, I'm 100% sure you're going to love the book. You can get your copy at calmthechaosbook.com. And if you use this link, you'll also get some special bonuses. So once again, the link is calmthechaosbook.com. Thanks. I hope you're enjoying the show. You know, and Dana, I'm sure that a lot of your listeners uh, have heard the term co-regulation. We use the term mutual regulation in the CERTS model. And that is in the relationship and in the interaction, how do we help a child be well-regulated? How do we read a child or a person's signals? And again, this is a human issue. It's not an autism issue. There are some people you just don't like to be around because they make you anxious. There are other people you love to be around, especially if you're feeling dysregulated because you know they'll help you be in a better place. They listen to you. They respond to you. They adjust their behavior. You know, if you're really sad and, and despondent, they put their arm around you, give you a little hug and say, you know, if you want to talk about it, we could talk about it now. Um, so the important piece is that we have, it's not a regular state. We have to shift based upon reading that person's signals of where Absolutely. they are. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Which actually leads me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prompt you now. Okay. <laughs> I, I have a feeling I know where you're going. You Go ahead. <laughs> It's called the it factor. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's where yeah, I was going to go. Like, this sounds like the it factor. <laughs> yeah, right. so reading reading the book, I was telling Barry right before we started, for those of you listening, that when I got towards the end of the book and he starts talking about the it factor, I kind of felt sorry for the people on the plane as I was like devouring this book because I was like, yes, and yes. <laughs> you know, I was I was outwardly so excited about the things that I was hearing and listening to as I was reading the book. So uh, Barry, can you share a little bit about the it factor and um, and the difference between when you have it and when you don't have it? Yeah, well, the it factor... Um came from actually a workshop I did in Vancouver a number of years ago. And as part of the Q&A, somebody raised their hand and they said, Barry, you know, sometimes we talk about people who are just naturals in supporting autistic students. You know, so what, what does it take to be a natural at doing this? And, you know, and, and my response was, oh yeah, parents hope and pray whether it's a teacher, therapist, or a paraprofessional, you know, that, that, they just know how to read a child. And a hand went up in the audience and, uh, and it was a mother, a mother who also happened to be a pediatrician. Okay. And she said, Oh yes. In my family, we call this the it factor. Um, and I said, go ahead, take it away. (laughs) And, and she said, well, I have a teenage son and if, and she says it doesn't happen frequently enough, but it's happened. Somebody will meet my son. Maybe it's a, a new person in the school or it's a kid in the neighborhood. And I see that person interacting with my son and I know right away they got it, okay? Mm-hmm. They are patient. They know 
They enjoy talking and spending time with my son. You could just see it flows. They listen to him. They don't rush him. They don't try to correct him. And those people just got it. They know how to make my son feel grounded and well-regulated. And my son can more easily develop trust with those people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I said, yeah. And then she goes, and then, then there are some people who are it-like. And I said, oh, go ahead. <laughs> and she said, it-like people are those who have the best of intentions, but they know what they don't know. So they may say, listen, you know, I've never met or never worked with an autistic young man before, um, but I want to learn and I want to do the best I can. So maybe that person says to the parent, well, teach me, help me, you know, and, and I'll do the best I can. Um, and sometimes people who are it like with the best of intentions um, and learning, willingness to learn, move to that level of being, of having it. Okay. I love and it. then I said, yep. And then there's a category that I see sometimes in my consulting. And and this mom said, oh, go ahead. <laughs> we were t- turn taking. <laughs> and I said, there are some people who are the itless people. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, yeah, I've ran into that before. And so I, I said, you know, let me give you an example. I was consulting in a school program a few weeks ago. And there was this paraprofessional who was just hired and it was clear she was a disciplinarian, maybe brought up that way. Okay. This is bad behavior. You have to stop doing that. You need to listen to me getting right in the child's face who was centrally defensive. And I saw over a one hour period that again, she probably didn't realize that she was kind of new, that she was actually causing more dysregulation and getting in the way of that child learning and a productive relationship. And, you know, we can make a list of who that might be. It's people who have their own agenda and their own ideas, or there are some people who come in and say, I'm the expert. So I have seen some professionals who are trained in particular, very inflexible techniques, literally telling experienced teachers, you're just reinforcing that bad behavior when the teacher is actually showing how to help a child regulate when they're dysregulated. You should be ignoring that behavior. Um, and that's that was the last thing that child needed because what the child needed was somebody to support him or her in that instance. So the itless people, and I've said in some of my school consulting, I've gone back to the special ed director and said that person needs some more training or needs to be shaped up very quickly and monitored because he or she is causing more harm than good. You know, what's the Hippocratic oath in medicine, do no harm, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, that that's what the itless people are. I will tell you some of the programs and some of them use our educational model, the CERTS model, have wonderful paraprofessional training programs. And, you know, it supports the teacher in the classroom. Everybody's on the same page. And what these programs are about, let's all read the child's signals And the biggest issue here is emotional regulation. Let's Mm -hmm. all understand when a child is getting dysregulated, here are the strategies we can use. Um, And so what you're doing is you're helping it like people become much better at supporting kids and helping some of them move into the got it category. Mm -hmm. And hopefully what you're doing is if a person comes and is hired, somehow gets 
because we know there's such a shortage of personnel. So some people who are maybe itless will be hired, okay, simply because we need bodies, right? Then we have to put a program in place to make sure that that person understands. This is not about you. This is about this child, okay? It's not about how you feel. I literally have seen retired grandparents come in with all good intentions saying, this kid just needs more discipline. That's how I raise my kids. And it's not a bad intention. She or it's usually a she. I don't see that too many retired grandfathers. I've seen a few. But but anyway, it, 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 it's this sense of, you know, respect me because I'm a very, very experienced parent. But what might what she might have seen as work with her kids is not the right way with a child on the autism spectrum. So there's one question that I absolutely love to ask everyone that comes on. And um, it's because I love for parents to be able to kind of whittle it all down and be able to take this away. And and so if you're sitting, and I know you've done this many times, but if you're sitting in front of a parent and they've experienced a lot of itless people <laughs> in their life and um, and they're really struggling with meeting their kid, reading their kid's signals and understanding autism from this new perspective, what is the one thing that you want them to walk away with and hear today? You can't blame the child for their disability. Okay. That's the phrase I use. That's so often when people are saying, um, I actually have a whole slide with this. Oh, she's just being manipulative. Okay. She doesn't need support. She's just trying to get out of this activity. We got to stop those stims. She uses those stims just to avoid tasks. Whenever we are imputing intentions to a child, of, oh, it's a control issue. He's just trying to control everything. You know, to that, what I like to say is, yep, that's what human beings do when you're feeling dysregulated. Every human being tries to have more control because a sense of having more control in your life is regulating when everything seems to be confusing or out of control. We all do it. I can give you lots of examples of that, but we're not going to go through yeah. that right now. But when, when, I'll give you one example. When something happens in our life, uh, let's say a child is very sick or a partner gets injured in a car accident and a curveball is thrown at us that causes a lot of stress, it's that much more important to keep certain routines in our life consistent because we need that predictability when things that are out of our control are making things very unpredictable. We all need that. And I've seen many, many people who work with autistic kids saying, you know, he's always fighting for control. I'm just not going to give him that control. He has to understand he can have control. And I'll say, but why is he doing it? Um, you know, in my book, I talk about the why, the deep why. And, and so what I would say to parents to get back to your question is ask the deep why from your child's perspective. And you might say, understandably, I can't jump into my child's mind. I don't know what he or she's thinking or feeling. Guess what? We do this all the time with every person we interact with. We could try our best and best as a team approach. So I'm working in a situation right now where a child is a very, very bright youngster, is, uh, has been introduced to a new school, and the school is very family-centered and actually very, very wonderful. But they've never taken a really deep dive into emotional regulation, reading a child's signals, setting up different levels of support based upon the signals that a child is giving to us. Anything from he needs a break now, maybe a little time by himself, or he needs to really get some physical activity to let his energy out. Um, 
So I would say to parents, you know, really ask the deep why. And you, it doesn't have to be just on your shoulders. Join the team or have the team join you. And let, let's brainstorm together. It's very, very important. You know, my my wife in her own work, she's a psychologist and a nurse, and, and she works on supporting families whose kids have serious medical problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and she always likes to say, no, no one person is as smart as all of us. Um, because all of us get to see a youngster under different circumstances. All of us can develop educational hypotheses as to what's going on, which can lead to strategies. And then we measure the effectiveness of those strategies in too many cases. And I'm sorry, I'll just say it. And in the field of applied behavior analysis, in many cases, I'm not saying all, in many cases, there is a head therapist who writes all the programs for the registered behavior therapist um, or the people under him or her to carry out. And that's a hierarchical model. There's one person who knows best who tells the parents and everybody else what to do. That totally misses the richness of really bringing everybody together and brainstorming, even if they agree with you with all the degrees after your name, I mean, disagree with you with all the degrees after your name. It's very, very important. I think that's so, so important for parents to know. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And where can parents keep following you and learn more? Obviously, they need to get your book. So share them where they, you know, more about the book, where they can get that and how they can follow your work. And the book is in its second edition um, that came out last year. The original came out in 2015. I'm very proud to say it's translated into 26 languages and has been the best-selling book on autism in the last eight years. The themes are universal. Um, I get notes and letters from Korea, from Vietnam, you know, from all countries in Europe, um, Western, non-Western countries, mainland China, you know, about, hey, you're describing my child, and that's how I see my child, but people don't believe we should look at my child that way. So the book, the podcast, um, Oh, God, I've learned so much from our podcast. My co-host is Dave Finch. Dave is an autistic audio engineer, so it's a neurotypical neurodivergent partnership. Um, We are approaching, um, maybe we passed uh, 80 uh, episodes released, and we are approaching a million distinct downloads um, from 150 countries right now. So again, what's gratifying to me is not so much the numbers, but there seems to be something universal in the message I'm sharing from my colleagues and from most of the people we interview on our podcast are autistic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people say, well, Barry, you know so much, how much more can you learn? Well, we've been doing our podcast in, uh, for three years now, and I've learned more in the last three years from the podcast alone than probably 20 years before then. Um, wow. Just listening to so many of my friends who are autistic who have different areas of expertise. Some are professionals. You know, we've interviewed autistic psychologists. Autist- we, I, two weeks ago, we interviewed the founder of Autistic Doctors International, an organization of 900 autistic doctors, okay? Uh, and, he's, and she's the second doctor that, that, um, who's autistic that we've interviewed. OTs, SLPs. I mean, many of them are professionals and many of them are parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, my web- website needs to be updated, but the podcast, 
book. Nothing at all. I mean, uh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> and and one thing I will give you a little glimpse that's coming down the line is um, being supported in developing a wonderful, what so far, I think it's going to be wonderful, a nonprofit called the Uniquely Human Alliance, oh, where nice. we want to develop alliances with organizations and with people, um, parents, autistic people, and so forth, because there's some wonderful, and you know this, there are some wonderful things that are happening, but it's in silos. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, all of, so, I mean, an example you said to me before we went on, oh, you know, I just met Debbie Feinberg, uh, Kunz, Steinberg Kunz, excuse me, with her Bright and Quirky Network, okay? Um, and, you know, I've gotten to know Debbie over the last few years, and I'll say to people, you know, who could benefit from Bright and Quirky, have you heard of Bright and Quirky? No, I've never heard of Bright and Quirky. So anyway, what we're trying to do is to um, not replicate what people do, obviously not, it's impossible, but to develop an alliance with people to put forth the message that I've tried to communicate at least in part with you over the last hour or so. Yeah. Yeah. So that's coming well, down the line. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that. That sounds amazing. And I, you know, recently I've been talking with other people in the field and I've been saying exactly that is, you know, if we all got together and were able to to connect our different networks then we together can change the world and help spread this message. And everything you've shared today is so in alignment with everything I believe and the parents that are following along. Uh, so thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Again, I'm so honored that you'd come and share this with us. And I encourage everyone who's listening to this to go and check out uh, the Uniquely Human book and the podcast and then follow along for the new stuff that you've got coming out because it's absolutely wonderful. And your stuff. I mean, I have your book. <laughs> Calm the chaos right on my desk. I have to read it. And, and um, so this is exactly what I mean. You know, what you're doing now is helping to make connections that we all need to make. Um, yeah. And we're going to uh, get you on our podcast and spread the word as well. So, yeah. I always love when I interview people who I've looked up to for so long and I hear so much of what I've put together and in my frameworks and roadmap for parents. And I'm like, yes, like, so they're not going to hear conflicting things when they hear different things. They're going to be able to say, yes, it's about reading signals. It's about listening to our kids and the signals they're sending us. And it's just, it's lovely. This has been an amazing conversation. And one other thing that I'd like to say, because it, it, it so much aligns with your work, and that is letting parents know to a great extent, it's okay to trust your intuitions, um, even if somebody with an expert label is saying, well, I, I don't think you should be doing that with your kid. You say, but I do it and it works. <laughs> yes. It's so important. Yes, yes. yes. Really, really yeah. listening to, I saw a post today in a group even, and someone said, oh, I, I joined this parenting program and it's really rigid. And it says I have to stick with this all the time. And it just, it feels icky and it feels like it's not working. It feels like I'm actually getting into more control issues with my kid. And I just wanted to scream, stop. <laughs> you don't have to be so firm and so rigid um, because your rigidity is going against their rigidity. And so uh, the more that you can, you can 
routines are great, but it has to be a routine that works for your kid. And so really listen to that gut feeling and really listen to um, what you've noticed about your family and know that you are an expert in your childhood because you spend way more time with your kid than many of us. You know, I'll put my professional hat on now for a second. Just to be clear, it doesn't mean, I know you're not saying this. It doesn't mean when we say you are the expert on your child, it doesn't mean that guidance from professionals can't be very helpful. Absolutely. I know you're not saying that. What it means is when that guidance is provided, it has to at least to some degree resonate with how you see your child and your values as a parent in raising your child. Yeah, there's this feeling you get in your gut and you're like that just doesn't feel right. Like, you know, I when I I talk about this in the book a lot, but with my son, um, you know, we came up a lot of itless people. <laughs> and so we had a few people that had the it factor, but um we had a lot of principles that were he knows better. He he knows he shouldn't be doing this. He's just doing this on purpose. And I was just like, oh, but look at him. Like, you know, I walked into the office one day and he had written no around the whole um, like office my son had. And they were like, look at this. He's being so destructive. And when we looked at what had happened, it was the only way he could get them to literally listen because they weren't right. listening to what he, the signals he was sending and what he was trying to say to him. And when I walked in, he was under a table in like the fetal position. And that shouldn't have to happen in our school system. And that's why I think your work is so incredibly important. And the more we can get more people to hear this, the better, um, because I hope that we start raising you know, that we, we someday have a generation where that doesn't have to be a story that parents tell, that kids have to tell um, that they went through because we'll have people that just get it. Absolutely. The, the more we work together towards that goal, the more successful we'll be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Well, those of you listening, this has been one of my favorite episodes so far, not to pick favorites, but I have absolutely enjoyed this episode. I hope you have too. Um, And definitely go check out uh, Dr. Barry's work and get the Uniquely Human book, the Uniquely Human podcast. If you're a listener like me, you can download it on Audible. Um, I do best that way, but I have both the like make notes and everything. And if you're looking for ways to um, just Be the parent that you want to be for your unique human and you want to be able to see your kid in their unique ways. We have more and more, um, you know, advice and tips and plans for you. If you just head on over to calmthechaospodcast.com, you can get the show notes for this and you can also check out our book, calmthechaosbook.com. It marries so nicely with everything that Barry has said today. So we look forward to talking to you on next week's podcast. I'll see you then. Bye, guys. Oh, and before I go, one quick note for all of you who are enjoying the podcast. My new book is officially live, and I know you're going to love it. So just a quick reminder, you can go get your copy at calmthechaosbook.com. And if you do, you'll get some cool bonuses as well. Once again, get your copy at calmthechaosbook.com, and I'll see you next week.